There's a saying in Mandarin, Tian Zai Hai Shi Ren Huo. In English, are disasters man-made or sent from the heavens? Drought has always been a part of humanity, part of the myths and legends of all cultures. But modern day society keeps exacerbating this calamity in many ways. Climate change, our technological needs, and even carne asada. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Friday, July 30th, 2021. Coronavirus cases hit record highs in Tokyo as the Olympics near its halfway point. The largest earthquake to hit the U.S. in more than 50 years rocks Alaska. Magnitude 8.2. And a study finds that the best place to ride out a global societal collapse is New Zealand. See, Samwise was right, Mr. Frodo. The Shire. In our conclusion to Drought Week, we leave the American West to travel around the world to Mexico, where the continued lack of rain threatens to upend rural culture, to Taiwan, where a lack of water threatens your next smartphone, and in China, where the opposite is happening right now in one city, too much water. Welcome to an occasional feature at The Times, World Panel, where we check in with LA Times correspondents from across the globe on a topic they're all covering at the same time. Today, obviously, it's drought. I'm joined by three of the LA Times foreign correspondents. Kate Linthicum covers Latin America and is based in Mexico City. Kate, welcome. Hi. David Pearson covers Asia and is based in Singapore. David, what's going on? Hey, what's up, Gustavo? And Alice Su is a Beijing bureau chief. Welcome back, Alice. Hi. We'll start with you, Kate. You recently visited the state of Sonora, which is right across the U.S.-Mexico border from Arizona, which we talked about in yesterday's episode. I've got a lot of things to say about Sonora, but I want you to go first. Describe its people, its landscape, its culture. Yeah, so Sonora is a super arid state that even in the best of years doesn't get a lot of rain. Its cattle are not, you know, from that part of the world. They were brought there by Spanish missionaries. But ever since then, ranching and beef have been a huge part of local culture. It's not uncommon for people to eat red meat three times a day. You have your machaca for breakfast, your bistec for lunch, and your carne asada for dinner. Even the state flag has a big bull on it. So they're proud. Don't forget the bushel of wheat, Sonora, don't mess around. Yeah, in Mexico, everyone knows the best beef and flour tortillas come from Sonora, and the people are really proud of being so country, being rancheros. It's like a humble version of Texas, but right now Sonora is also like Arizona because it's going through a punishing drought. Yeah, the drought is now in its second year, and when I was there last week, it was like an apocalypse. There were dead cows everywhere. Tens of thousands of cows have starved to death because there's just not enough grass for them to eat. And the fact is that ranching in Sonora and the rest of the world is part of climate change. It's helping drive climate change because the amount of water that cattle require and the high amounts of methane gas that cows produce. So it's sort of ironic that in Sonora, you know, climate change is now exacerbating droughts and making ranching pretty impossible. So it's this kind of vicious cycle and it's only getting worse. In the second half of this century, Sonora is expected to be 10 degrees hotter than it is now and rain 20 to 30 percent less. Yeah, so what does that mean for Sonora's carne asada culture? 
It's a good question. Meat eating is so ingrained. It's a part of the diet. It's a part of people's pride. People view like red meat as kind of a birthright there. Even the academic who I talked to, who's, you know, raising alarm bells about how cattle ranching is unsustainable in the region, she admitted to me that she still eats carne asada. Yeah, you you just can't escape it. And then, you know, talk about wheat. Sonora is the home of flour tortillas. Less rain means less wheat means less flour tortillas? Potentially, yeah. I mean, so far, agriculture, you know, is suffering too. So down the line, that could be an issue. Oh, man, you do not want to live in a world where there's no carne asada in Sonora anymore. We'll be right back. David, there's not much of a cattle industry in Taiwan. Instead, one of the biggest industries there is absolutely crucial to our modern world, semiconductor chips. That's right. Taiwan is the absolute epicenter of the semiconductor industry in the world. So semiconductors is just a fancy long word for microchips. And as we enter, you know, we rely more and more on technology in the digital age, the demand for them just becomes greater. I mean, there's basically every single electronic device our life would come to a standstill if Taiwan stopped producing microchips today. So everything, smartphones, home thermostats, cars, microwaves. I mean, at this point, what doesn't run on semiconductor chips? Very few things. And the thing is, Taiwan has particularly one company, TSMC, which is responsible for almost all the high-end chips. There's hardly any other companies in the world that can do what TSMC does. People never think of them. In fact, before I did research for this episode, I figured that the way that the drought in Taiwan was affecting the production of semiconductor chips was because there wasn't enough water for hydroelectric power. But as usual, I was completely wrong. So how does drought connect to semiconductor chips? Well, making these chips is so complex that it requires millions and millions of gallons of water and not just regular water. It requires something called ultra-pure water which is basically like an industrial solution. It's so clean because these chips can't function if they have just the slightest bit of dirt on them. So they're being rinsed as they're being processed. And you're talking about millions of tiny transistors the size of, of, you know, the width of human DNA. It's just mind-boggling how complex this is. But the water that's required to create something this complex is just astronomical. I read an article, I think it was a Wall Street Journal, also talking about how people weren't cutting back on their use because Taiwan has some of the cheapest water rates in the world. Yes, this is one of the big problems in Taiwan is that the government has been reluctant to raise prices. They're working toward changing that now. They've now committed to cutting emissions down to zero by 2050. So they're really looking at reforming their energy policy. And Taiwan, it's a subtropical and tropical island that is usually hit by monsoons. And yet in the past couple of years, it's been ravaged by drought. That's right. It's one of the the last places on Earth you would associate with a drought. But then something just crazy happened last year. There was no typhoons, which usually replenishes the country's reservoirs with water. And so now Taiwan is sort of getting the worst of both worlds with climate change. Droughts are getting more severe, and when it does rain, that also becomes more extreme, creating problems with flooding. Alice, you haven't been covering drought in China, but instead reported on its flip side, flooding in the city of Zhengzhou in China's Henan province. And yet there's a connection to years of little rainfall, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Actually, I'm intrigued by what David just said about the change in weather in Taiwan because Henan is kind of similar. So I just got back from Henan province and usually this area is very dry. There isn't much rainfall. And so last week, these catastrophic floods began. And I say began because they're, they're ongoing. In Zhengzhou, the weather bureau, the, the local authorities um, said they received as much rainfall in just three days as they would usually receive in one year. So, you know, that's a massive amount of rain and it caused these huge flash floods. And there were these really nightmare scenes coming out of the city that kind of went viral on social media and shocked the whole nation. The death toll in China has risen as floodwaters remain in several Chinese cities as well as in the central city of Zhengzhou. The toll rise comes as a rescue operation in the major central city continues. One man was rescued after spending three days trapped in a flooded underground garage following torrential rains. The man managed to stay alive by laying on a ventilation duct surrounded by floating cars. Meanwhile, rescuers used bulldozers and rubber boats to evacuate residents of areas that were still underwater. The rain also flooded a subway tunnel where over a dozen people died, knocked out power to a hospital and left streets filled with mud. While skies have now cleared, parts of Zhengzhou and other cities including Hebei, Jinjiang and Anyang are still underwater. One of the most harrowing scenes was that there were about 500 people trapped inside a subway car and, you know, a bunch of them sent videos outside while they were in there and the water started to rise and it came all the way up to their necks. And you could see in the videos there was this, you know, murky brown flood water rushing outside and then people got really desperate. Later on, survivors gave interviews and said, you know, the scariest thing was the lights were off. It was just emergency lights. The water kept coming higher and higher. And then they started feeling a shortage of oxygen. People were kind of pressing their faces to the cracks of the train, trying to breathe. Um, and in the end, 14 people died. Um, 14 people drowned in that subway train. You know, flooding happens every year in China, but a lot of the times it's rural areas that are affected more than the cities. And China has these, you know, dam uh, systems. They have these flood control systems and they tend to, you know, flood a lot of villages every year, and but keep the cities relatively safe. So what happened in Zhengzhou really shocked and scared people. But going back to what we were saying about the extreme weather, climate experts say that what's happening in China is not more and more rainfall every year, but is more and more extreme weather. So kind of swings between drought and extreme rain. And as the weather swings between each end, it's getting more extreme. Zhengzhou was a particularly interesting place for those floods to happen, not just, as you said, it's usually dry, but the Chinese government had also designated it as a so-called sponge city, a place where concrete is being removed in favor of green space and natural riverbanks. And in June, the state media actually reported that Zhengzhou had eliminated about 75% of the city's flood-prone areas. And yet these adjustments couldn't even compete with all the rain that fell. Yeah, that's right. So China, first of all, had really massive rapid urbanization, building up lots and lots of cities you know, all over the country and a lot of concrete, a lot of non-permeable surfaces. And in recent years, there's this idea that cities should be like sponges. So this one expert I interviewed last year was telling me, you know, right now we treat water like 
like a toilet. Like we try to flush it out as fast as possible and we try to, you know, speed it up and move it along. But that now the, the thought among scientists is that that causes actually higher risk for these kinds of flood catastrophes. And the thinking is, no, instead of the toilet idea, we should create cities that are sponges. So more green space, you know, wide river banks. Uh, just as much green as possible and let the water have its space so that it can slow down. The problem is that even the spongely designs were not made for this degree of extreme rain. So despite the changes, it almost seems like the weather is getting more extreme faster than the adjustments can be made. In fact, it's been raining so hard in China in recent years that the famous Three Gorges Dam was at its highest level ever last year. And you wrote about that. And a lot of these dams in China, you know, again, China is a place where it floods a lot. So you have a lot of dams and they're trying to hold back these fluctuations of water levels. But they're having a problem to do that. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the Three Gorges Dam so far is still intact. You know, it's still functioning. But every year with the floods, we see dams being damaged. We see water overflowing or breaking through dams and dikes. And I mean, I I don't think it has yet seeped into a lot of the public conversation, but that may be changing now, you know, especially this summer. Hopefully it it will change soon. Um, There was this one guy I interviewed, the one I, I told you about, the Sponge City guy, he told me, you know, he spent years writing letters and sending them to every mayor in China and sent copies of his research on urban infrastructure, on Sponge Cities and told them, you know, we have a crisis coming, we need to change. And for many, many years, you know, people were not listening to him. But I think it's becoming clear that there needs to be a rethinking of how we how we handle water, how we live with the water. Uh, like what I saw in Zhengzhou last week was also just that a lot of the the urban infrastructure is also in danger. Um, during the floods, there was this one smaller town west of Zhengzhou that had um, an aluminum alloy plant that exploded, you know, and just sent this huge fireball into the air because according to official reports, um, the water was overflowing from a nearby river and it broke into the plant and interacted with this high temperature solution inside the plant and caused this huge explosion. So kind of, you know, there there will be second degree disasters. And in the days following the floods in Zhengzhou, which is um, the capital city of Henan, at least two apartment buildings were evacuated because they suddenly tilted, like they became slanted and local reporters went to see it and they saw, you know, cracks on the floor. And we saw on several roads, like these huge sinkholes where the ground just opened up and trees just fell through. So it felt like a big warning sign that we're not prepared and we need to change. So this is the interesting and scary part to me about drought. We're at the end of drought week and we were planning this for weeks and now all of a sudden there is rain like crazy in every place that we just talked. So David, the drought in Taiwan was so bad that the second Baoshan Reservoir, which provides most of that water for the big semiconductor companies, in May it was at just 2.6% capacity, the lowest ever. Now because of all the rains, it's completely full. Yeah, it's, it's come back. I mean, it's this situation again where the dry time is drier and the wetter times are wetter. And so it's coming back. And so, you know, you're just basically swinging from one extreme to the next. You're adapting to drought. And now you have to adapt to floods. And that's it's really hard for policymakers because, I mean, they were scrambling earlier. They were doing stuff like cloud seeding which is when they were sending chemicals into the air above the reservoirs in hopes that, you know, would open up the skies. They were speeding up the construction of desalination plants. 
They're going to build three new reservoirs. They cut off irrigation to farmers, to rice farmers uh, over there, which, you know, just created more tension between the generations of agriculture and the, you know, the technology companies, which are, are being forced to produce more microchips because of all this demand from around the world. You know, the, the world is relying on Taiwan for these chips. This has been a wake-up call in the sense that people recognize how important Taiwan is to the global supply chain. And you have people from all over the world now paying attention to a drought in Taiwan where it really didn't garner that much attention in the past. Taiwan is a territory that lives under existential threat from China at all times to begin with. So in some ways, you could say people are complacent there because... They've been dealing with threats to their lives and existence for decades. It's really a fraught situation for Taiwan right now. Kate, it recently rained in Sonora. There was even flooding in the border town of Nogales. Uh, the legendary chubascos, the thunderstorms that arrive every summer, immortalized in the state's rural culture in Corridos and Norteñas. Is any of that going to help the drought there? Yeah, so there has been some rain this summer, but it hasn't been enough. The drought continues in 97% of the municipalities in Sonora. And the big issue is that, at least for cattle ranchers, is that so many cows died from hunger. So many ranchers were forced to sell their cows or slaughter their cows that the number of cows that exist in the state has fallen by half a million so you have 40% fewer cows. And that means that ranchers, you know, have basically fewer cow-making machines because what they do is they use the cows that they have to make baby cows and then sell those generally to the United States. So from an economic perspective, it's a disaster and it's one that's going to continue. There's a little bit of hope that the La Nina season, which has been kind of exacerbating the situation, is going to ease later this year and that Sonora might return to more typical weather patterns with a little more rain. But a lot of people also are worried that, you know, if next year is a relatively rainy year, for example, that people will forget, you know, how terrible the drought has been and what this has showed us, which is that ranching in a state that is completely arid and really wasn't, you know, originally designed for that is a pretty tricky concept and, and not one that we should probably rely on and won't be able to for a long time. And Alice, while Zhengzhou has a bunch of water right now, other Chinese provinces like Ernan and Guangdong are going through drought. So a final question for all of you, and I'll start with Alice. Are the people affected by these weather changes acting like it's business as usual, or are they now preparing to live in a world of perpetual drought? Well, I mean, I just came back from a catastrophically flooded area. So definitely the people, they're not living like it's business as usual. I mean, they've lost so much. But it is interesting on the ground, particularly in these flooded villages, which, as I said, they're more often badly affected than the cities. I made a point of trying to ask people, you know, why do you think this happened? And, and sometimes I felt a little bit bad asking because 
you know, they're just thinking about how to live, how to rebuild, how to find food and electricity, things like that. But many people would tell me, you know, I've never seen rain like this. You know, I'm 70 years old in my whole life. I've never seen rain. I've never seen water like that. And I'd ask them, you know, well, why do you think this is happening right now? And most people would just say they wouldn't really refer to climate change. They would say kind of like, it came from the heavens, <laughs> you know, like we can't control it. This term that you mentioned at the beginning, it's interesting because in China, a lot of times, you know, after disaster, there is this tug of war, this debate that happens. Like, is it Tianzai? Is it just something we couldn't control? And a lot of times the government tends to say that, like, well, you know, once in a thousand years, like, how could we have predicted that? We, we didn't know. Or is it Renhu? And Renhu means, you know, man-made disaster. And there were people also asking questions about it on the ground in Zhengzhou saying man-made disaster just in the sense of was our infrastructure ready? Did we know there was going to be rain like this? Why weren't we told to stay home? Like, why weren't the businesses shut down? But I do think it's interesting that there isn't that much discussion of this other level of Renhu, this next broader, higher level of man-made disaster, which is aside from potential you know, government shortcomings or bureaucratic ineptitude, there's also the question of, are we also causing this greater change in the climate in general because of our lifestyles, because of the energy that we use? What are we doing in our everyday lives that is contributing to these crazy rains or unexpected drought. That is a discussion that is happening among some people, particularly in, in you know, the big cities, the highly educated environmental organizations and so on, but it has not yet become widespread uh, among the grassroots, the general Chinese population. Kate, so given that idiom in Spanish, we would say el cielo o el pueblo. So in Sonora, what are people blaming this drought on? It's interesting. Everybody recognizes that the droughts are drier and more extreme and last longer than they did in the past. Everybody knows something is is changing when it comes to the weather. I talked to one academic who had studied, you know, a small kind of ranching village and she said of the people she interviewed, about 50 percent kind of used the language of climate change, that term to describe what was happening. Others didn't. But everyone understands that things are changing and everyone is frankly pretty uneasy about the future. You know, you have some people with means, the bigger ranchers, they're drilling, they're drilling wells, they're growing alfalfa to feed the cows, which, of course, eventually is going to make things worse and make it drier in Sonora. And then you have, you know, the smaller guys who are just trying to figure out sort of how to go forward. I talked to this one rancher who three years ago had 100 cows, and now he has 30. He's watched 70 cows die from hunger over the last couple of years. He's 55. He's done everything he can to make sure his kids can study so that they can go work in the city and, and have a different kind of life. But at this point, you know, he's going to die being a rancher. And I was listening to him and a friend talk, and the other guy said, you know, we're going to be here, I guess, until the last cow dies or until we die. David, Alice, Kate, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. 
Now to the Tokyo Olympics. Faster, higher, stronger. And we're not talking about the COVID pandemic. All week, we're hearing from members of the U.S. Olympic squad, all from different sports, all with different dreams, ready to compete against the best in the world. I'm Corey Juno. I'm from San Diego, California. I'm 21 years old, and I'm competing in skateboarding at the Olympics, Tokyo 2021. The first time I rode a skateboard was a year after my brother actually got his first skateboard. I think he got it for his birthday, and I was jealous. So when I turned seven, I really wanted one. I started skating every day from then. I think I was 10, maybe, when I started competing on like a regular basis, you know? I was like probably going every month I had a new contest. These contests called the castles, and then there was like state games. I got into those and it just kind of like step by step, took it to another level, another level, and then I was skating at professional slash amateur contests with the dudes I looked up to. I think I progressed so much because I was just so intrigued by skateboarding and skateboarders and the lifestyle they had. It was the only thing I thought about from when I woke up to when I got out of school. It was going skating with my friends, what I could do new, how I could perfect something, what, like, what I could try. The possibilities were endless. I've never had a coach. I probably will never have a coach. Like, you could help someone figure something out because it diff feels different for everybody. But I don't think a coach would work for me or a lot of people that I skate with because we're doing stuff that people don't do. Like, we're doing stuff that we want to do. Hard to describe your own style because, like, it's natural, obviously, but I'd say it comes from, like, kind of like a Southern California surf skate flowy, kind of go with the transition type style, you know, just don't overdo anything. Skate parks are canvas, you make videos, everyone has an individual style and same thing with art, everyone has their own style, how they paint or how they draw. Everyone skates their own way, it's creativity, you go to a different spot, everybody looks at a spot in two different ways, you know, nobody looks at something the same. So when you go somewhere, you just like try and do what suits you or what's creative to you or what you would enjoy doing. So yeah, it's an, to me, it's an art and it's hard to like put it in the, like call it a sport because it's not like, oh, you ran faster than this guy. You obviously won. It's all like personal preference. I think it takes just confidence more than anything and knowing that you're capable of doing something even though it might not seem possible the first time you try it you just keep trying it like persistence and dedication and repetition of trying over and over and over until you get it i mean it's still a huge honor to go to the olympics but i think it's just good to have all these new people looking into what we're doing and having some appreciation for it. It's not easy. And we put our bodies and our minds and it all on the line. So we're like real athletes. 
it'll open up like a lot of a lot of people and inspire a lot of people hopefully a lot of kids and people to start skating and see what's so great about it i completely fell in love and i've never saw myself doing anything else i was like all right well this is what i want to do i'm gonna give it everything i got Wishing all of our athletes the best of luck. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. And that's it for our inaugural drought week. May rain now come everywhere, but not too much. Next week, to shame or not to shame unvaccinated people of color? That's a question we're going to ask and answer. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn and Denise Guerra. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. Our intern is Ashley Brown, and our theme music is by Andrew Ipin. I'm Gustavo Arellano, and we'll be back Monday with all the news and this Madre. Gracias. <laughs>